Hey everyone, this is Trip Bodenheimer, host of the Shadows Podcast. We believe that everyone has a truly unique, real-life story to tell. We interview a diverse cast of guests on their highs and lows, their tragedies and triumphs, and how they ultimately got to where they are today. We're a firm believer that we can all relate and learn from one another's stories. Check out new episodes every Monday on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and all podcast platforms. Hello, everyone. You are listening to Ignite, and I am your host, Caleb Pearson. Ignite is a brand new podcast where we bring in the experts on all things life, leadership, and development to provide a unique experience to learn and grow, all from the comfort of your own space and on your own time. When you are part of Ignite, you are joining individuals that are intentional, generous, noble, intelligent, tenacious, and all who strive for excellence. Today, I have the honor of introducing our next torchbearer, the charismatic Scott Mason. Good evening, Scott. Hello, it is good to be here. It's good to have you. How's your evening been? It is outstanding. Look, it's made all the better by the fact that I'm sitting here in the room with you. I tell you, as soon as I saw your big, bright teeth and that big smile, uh, <laughs> I was definitely in a better place. It's been a great day, and it's it's now an even better evening. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> all right. So for all my listeners, I'll tell you a little bit about Scott. Scott is an international inspirational and keynote speaker uh, focusing on creating space for people to connect to their higher purpose to build a better self and a better world. He's additionally the host of Scott Mason's Purpose Highway podcast and co-host of the Just a Squirrel Looking for a Nut humor-based podcast, which is an incredible podcast. You should all go take a listen. Prior to that, Scott was co-principal of the Brooklyn Press, a silkscreen printing company with locations in New York City, and Newburgh, New York. Did I say that right, Scott? You certainly did. Awesome. I'm on it. Previously, Scott was the general counsel and vice president of operations for Urban Resource Institute, the USA's largest provider of domestic violence shelter services and an operator of homeless shelters. He also spent nearly 20 years in executive and in-house counsel positions with various city of New York agencies including a time as the second in command of the agency which operates the city's administrative tribunal system. He is a graduate of Columbia Law School and Carleton College and of the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Businesses Program. Wow, what an array of accomplishments and what a bio that is. Uh, Wow. Who is that person? I don't know him. You, you don't recognize him? No, it ain't me. <laughs> well, he's supposed to be on today to teach you. Oh, okay, I'll put a mask on and pretend I'm him. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> uh, so today, in today's lesson, Scott will be taking us through leadership and purpose. Scott, are you ready to ignite these minds? I'm ready to totally set them on fire. All right, sir. The torch is yours. Thank you. 
Caleb, I was born in Europe, the child of a white woman and a black man. I was adopted by an African-American couple that were in the service. And they brought me to the US where I was raised in Kansas. It was a very unusual experience growing up there because I could count the number of biracial children of African-American <laughs> parents who were in addition to that LGBTQ, as I am, on one digit of one <laughs> finger. I felt like an outsider every single day of my life, not just in the overwhelmingly white milieu that I was in, but within my own family, particularly my extended family. I somehow, with a lot of hard work and not an insignificant amount of luck, ended up in New York City going to Columbia Law School, where I had to learn how to fit in with the children of fancy judges and highfalutin lawyers and, and college professors and people who had experienced lives in ways I couldn't imagine. And then I had to figure it out. My mom worked in a dog food factory. My father worked for the highway patrol. When I was in law school, having come to that sort of environment from the working class Midwestern outsider background that I was in, I walked those halls for a long time feeling like even more of an outsider than I'd ever felt in my life. Little did I understand that the groundwork for true, authentic, purposeful leadership was being laid down every single day in my life. And that's what I can talk to people about. I do talk to people about, and I hope to guide them to in their own lives. I'm loving it, Scott. Uh, I think a lot of us are ready for this lesson, ready for you to guide us and to, to, to help lead us in this path of purposeful leadership. You know, Leadership is something that we glorify in our society, and it is something that can create a lot of confusion with regards to the expectations that people have around it. There's a couple of things I want to just maybe point out to start off with. Number one, leadership is as much defined by the leader as it is by the followers. And in fact, a leader can only exist by dint of the follower's will. If no one will follow you, you cannot be a leader. And in that respect, leadership is distinct from something else that it is often confused with, and that is domination. For a long time, historically, particularly in certain highly patriarchal and highly uh, hierarchical societies, leadership has been intertwined with domination. The reality is that that was because people often didn't have a choice but to follow those that were dominating them, usually economically, but sometimes socially and sometimes socially and economically, militarily or in what other whatever other means might have been. Today, as we've moved more and more towards a post-industrial knowledge and creative-based society, 
the norms and expectations around leadership are dramatically shifting. Leadership in a society that is by and large knowledge-based and where creativity, innovation, and thinking, particularly original thinking are at a premium, uh, is affected profoundly by the interdependency between the leader and the led that the participants in a knowledge-based society expect. Earlier in the history of the modern workforce, particularly in the height of the manufacturing era, command and control leadership, which was largely dominated by leadership approaches that had a strong heritage basis in the older, more hierarchical forms of domination-based leadership were accepted as the norm. And in certain situations, highly hierarchical command and control leadership is totally appropriate. Emergency situations immediately come to mind. In the middle of, the, of a crisis, let's say a fire or a, a terrorist attack or any number of other situations where decisions need to be made on the spot and people need to be able to know what to do in order to preserve their own lives or the lives of those that they are there to protect, need to be able to get simple, clear, authoritative instructions and be able to follow them really without question. However, in situations where the leadership is designed to support, for instance, an organization that has complex responsibilities and in which the measurements of organizational success are more complex, demand a more complex way of thinking about leadership and executing leadership and being a leader. These are real challenges. One of the things that I have found most challenging about leadership has been learning how to flex it, depending on the circumstances, and learning how to develop a unique and purpose-oriented leadership style, even when the leadership milieu in which we operate does not support that. For a long time, I worked in government, as you mentioned earlier, it was nearly 20 years. And in my experience, there were certain challenges that came with civilian government leadership. A, although in the government entities that I worked for, the executive group was hired and could be fired at will, the people they supervised were largely part of the civil service community. And the civil service community has extensive union protections which can make it extraordinarily difficult to assert a lot of the organizational leadership levers that can, in non-government contexts, provide leadership with the flexibility uh, that they may want, if not necessarily need, to either coerce or encourage performance at a certain level. So for instance, a project deadline could be at 6 p.m. on a Friday evening. And literally, 
my future in a government entity could hinge on whether I deliver that on time. At the same time, the individuals who I am supervising that are responsible for putting together the components of the project for actually executing the various uh, parts of the project that would enable it to become complete can leave at five. And if they have been out sick one day during the week, or if they were distracted, or if they had a lot of chit chatting to do on the phone, <laughs> or if the project was simply more demanding than the civil service hours that they were obligated to put in necessitated, then literally at 5.01 on the date of the project completion, I could find out that the project was not done. It was 5.01. And so the entire staff that I had to uh, reach out to to find out the status of the project and what happened and if there is any remedy or if people will be willing to put in extra time, may all have signed up for the day. And there's absolutely nothing I can do about it, except hope that I'm not terminated. And so in those circumstances, one has to learn a number of different soft leadership styles that are there in order to, and that can support encouraging people that aren't necessarily feeling that their job or their pay or their promotions or any other ways of improving their situation within that organization are at risk if they don't perform. And if I am not comfortable with learning those soft power techniques, then I could end up in a situation where I am encountering enormous resistance. So in a government context, Leadership can be frustrating on the one hand, because in many situations, people are under no particular obligation to do what you as a supervisor ask them. Or if they're technically under that obligation, it is extraordinarily difficult and time-consuming to do anything about it. The only way to do anything about it, I found, was to provide an environment that was supportive, where they felt a sense of obligation to that mission, and where they were committed to the purpose that was behind whatever that project was, to move them in a better direction and to put in that extra time or do that extra work, or maybe not be taking every single possible break that they could, or maybe staying until 5.03 as opposed to 5.01 or maybe willing to talk to me about the priorities that they have and being willing to adjust accordingly. I also found that if I did not use those soft power and purpose-oriented leadership techniques, resistance in the civil service context could be overt or it could be subtle, but it could be like hitting a tsunami that never goes away. Because of the fact that getting rid of civil servants is so difficult, so arduous, so time-consuming, 
and so fraught with litigation risk, one uses the normal tools that a private sector or a non-union environment might have to enforce or to encourage performance at their own risk. Learning how and when to use those, but not being afraid to use them when they're necessary, although it involves a massive amount of time at work, is part of the navigation of power that one has to be able to develop if one wants to be an effective leader. And understanding that leadership is connected to power and that comfort with power authority and their relationship to leadership is, as part of the overall tool kit that a leader needs to be familiar with is an instrumental part of being a leader. Now, the beauty of this is that on the other side of the frustration that I spoke about, there is a skill set that you can develop in non-civil service contexts that actually are beneficial. Because if you're able to effectively provide high-level leadership, project completion, inspiration, and purpose-driven commitment to a group of civil servants, you can do it with anybody. I like what you said there at the end. Um, you can do that with anybody. And I'm sitting here, <clears throat> I'm thinking about what you're saying about uh, one thing that really stood out with me was as a leader and facing um, the opposition, the, the the pushback, you said, in, in you know, it could be a tsunami or it could come, you know, in droves or, or, or you know, very minimal. Um, and how we deal with that as leaders. Um, and then especially outlining uh, how to get your subordinates to being supportive to the purpose, committed to the purpose and obligated, having a sense of obligation to that mission. As I mentioned earlier, in any knowledge-based organization, but even actually in an organization where the product that's being produced is more of a commodity and therefore some of the responsibilities that a leader may be overseeing are more or less fungible in, in terms of who could do them. Relationships between the human beings that are the leaders and those being led are instrumental to the successful completion of any exercise. If that trust is not there, then that relationship can't be built. And the completion of that project or that enterprise or that exercise or that service is always at risk. The failure to develop trust by failing to connect to those that a leader leads not only puts individual projects, enterprises, services, or whatever at risk, it puts the leader's own position within the organization in an incredibly tenuous place. There was once a division that I worked in where there was a colleague of mine who led an organization that was adjacent to mine. 
and he and I were more or less lateral in our level within that that organization vis-a-vis each other. People may have said a number of different things about me as a leader, but one thing I have never been accused of being is indecisive. This leader, on the other hand, was very affiliational in his style. Whereas I sometimes erred a little bit too much on not caring whether my staff liked me or not, he cared way, way too much to the point that if staff disagreed or wanted or needed a decision, he was afraid to make it because he was afraid that the staff or those around him wouldn't like him. And that personal connection between himself and those he worked with was of paramount importance to him, even more so, although he probably wouldn't admit it publicly, than completion of the projects or being effective as a leader of that particular unit. The reason why this story is so important and why his style uh, was so devastating to him was that eventually some problems were uncovered in the unit. Some work wasn't done or it hadn't been done appropriately and someone needed to be held accountable. Ultimately, when an investigation began, his staff, almost to a person, confidentially decided to have conversations with the person who supervised him. And one after the other, they marched into her office and ripped him to shreds as a leader. Why did that happen? Because in his quest to have them like him, his indecision had undermined their trust in him. They may have liked him, but they didn't respect him. And at the end of the day, what they wanted was leadership that they could respect. So they turned on him. For all of the work that he had put into being liked, his leadership position ultimately ended because of that lack of trust that came about because they could not respect him. In other words, and without that trust, the relationship itself had been severed, even though ostensibly they all liked him. So we talk a lot about in in my profession as a as a military educator, uh, we talk specifically about trust and that connection with commitment and respect and leadership powers, positional power, you know, inherent powers, uh, powers that you were just inherently given because of your position or whoever you are. But then there's that um, personal power, right, that you get from being liked like as you spoke about right uh or you know certain things uh because you are the connector you have those connections or something like that so i'm glad that you touched on that and that relation between respect trust and commitment yeah relying on positional authority as the source of your leadership is a bit like attempting to build an oasis in a desert out of a flower pot. The well is not very deep. 
<laughs> people in modern organizations are very aware that A, executives can get fired. B, that the sands of organizational favor can shift quite quickly and that they can help bury someone if that person has in one way or another violated their trust or abused their trust. And also they will view you as weak if they feel like they are or unreliable or otherwise not worthy of anything other than superficial lip service style following if they view your authority as purely based on your place in the org chart or the title on that little sign on your desk. Legitimacy is a huge part of what one needs to have as a leader in order to be truly effective. I'm as guilty as many immature leaders have been upon, of, sorry, of relying on positional authority to get things done because on the surface, it's easier. But the consequences are very, very grave. Legitimacy is a large part of actually being a, well, you know, in, in retrospect and to take it back to what you said before, uh, a respected leader. Yeah. 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 The relationship between a leader and the lead, mm -hmm. leaving aside power dynamics or situations in which people are forced to follow someone is entirely reliant upon the consent of the lead. Positional authority is weak because it does not in any way rely on that consent. And consent can be taken away if the authority is abused. By the way, that is a danger that is particularly associated with reliance on positional authority as a way of getting things done within an organization. Abuse. Because abuse doesn't account for trust or the nature of the relationship. So really the only situation in which abuse can happen as an ongoing matter, leaving aside individual instances of abuse that just happens sometimes and not necessarily for the better or worse, it can happen very much for the worse. But generally if abuse is ongoing, it is a situation where the person's leadership is perceived as only occurring due to them having a position of power as opposed to actual power. You know, Caleb, one of the toughest lessons for me in life came on the martial arts mats, mat when I was training in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Because one of the things that I learned there, I had grown up imagining that part of what made someone, in my case, a man, was physical strength, physical prowess, all these sort of stereotypical things. And one of the things I learned in martial arts was that technique, self-discipline, creativity, commitment, internal character-related qualities 
ultimately were what put me in a position to develop my skills and be successful in the art of self-defense, not sheer strength, not the desire to dominate, not loudness, not boisterousness, not all these other sort of superficial, some would call toxic characteristics associated with certain male ideals. And the lesson that I took from that is that really who and how we present in the world, in whatever context it might be, is related to and ultimately dependent on the externalization of our internal character. And that, by the way, includes our actions in the world as leaders. There has been a lot of discussion in the public space around the relationship of character to leadership in the past few decades. Let's just say that. There were for many years discussions around the relationship of other qualities with leadership, intellect, commitment to philosophical grounding, courage, or ability to win battles or strategy or the ability to accumulate wealth. All of these as subjects of discussion related to leadership are valuable, but character in a knowledge and creative-based creative economy as the grounding for legitimacy of a leader, the thing that provides that trust to the lead is in my opinion, more paramount than ever, but it also requires a certain level of understanding by the leader that the ability to look within, face one's character deficiencies and work to overcome them become more of a required subject matter than ever. I think you bring up, sorry, I'm writing again, uh, a great point. I, I'm I'm writing a book over here. <laughs> but, <laughs> Give me uh, some credit if it's it, Oh, of course. And certainly it, if it sells, I'll, I'll take some royalties too. <laughs> but no, um, you touched huge on character. And finishing up right there at, uh, that, that last uh, point that you made with inner reflection. And I think a lot of leaders now maybe find that disconnect because they aren't turning inward. Yeah. They're not looking inward. I know that one of my biggest and greatest, I guess, changes of development towards an improvement was whenever I finally started looking at myself, yeah, um, recognizing my own character. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And working on our weaknesses. Yes. And highlighting our weaknesses, right? Yeah. Uh, not necessarily being shameful of our weaknesses, but saying, hey, this is what I'm weak at. This is what I need work on. Yeah. But I'm going to push those to the top because yeah. 
I know that I need to work on those. Yeah. And yeah. being candid about them and understanding that we can never be truly objective about ourselves. Mm. Yes, sir. As an entrepreneur, I don't necessarily have a, within my organization, a number of people that I can turn to for advice about things that I don't know anything about. And some of those external advisors that I develop relationships with because of that deficiency are around obvious subject matters that I, some people have knowledge in and, and have proof of that by virtue of their degrees or their certifications that I simply can't match and it would be foolish for me to not rely on them. So for instance, I'm not an accountant. So for me to uh, say, oh, I'm going to do the accounting and you know work up the P&Ls and the balance sheets for my company and be responsible for interpreting them and interpret, interpreting the generally accepted accounting principles for myself and researching them and make sure they're being applied within you know all of the accounting practices that I might use for all purposes in my building, in my business would be utter and complete idiocy. And almost no entrepreneur would take that upon themselves especially knowing full well that there are people that have degrees and certifications that put them in a position where they can provide those services with skill and expertise. So as an entrepreneur, in order to deal with that, we develop those relationships with those external knowledge partners. We can forget that those areas within ourselves that need development or that we may not have sufficient strength in also require external strategic partners for us to bounce ideas off of and to get some unvarnished thinking about. I, for instance, know that there are certain things that provoke me or irritate me. They might be personality types or they might be behavioral types. And I also know, for instance, that if I am irked by someone working for me or with me, that I can move quickly into attorney mode. After all, I am trained as an attorney. And I can draft up an email that sounds, that's very detailed, very professionally crafted, very lacerating, very ominous sounding, and will put the fear of God into whoever reads it. Or I know that if I have a conversation with someone and I'm irked with them, I can go into full cross-examination mode and they can feel like they've just been ripped to shreds on a witness stand. I also know that either of those behaviors undercut my credibility. They undercut my trust. They make me seem like a monster, someone who's abusing my education and, and skill. And I've learned the hard way that it is in my interest that, to recognize when I am beginning to walk towards the ledge that those behaviors take me to, I need to have external advisors around me that I can have a conversation with honestly before I take that action. Or maybe after I've drafted that email or fantasized about the conversation in my head and pull them aside and say, look, will you talk to me? And I explain the situation and why I'm frustrated. And this is how I'm feeling like I should react, or this is how I want to react. And that person can say, A, Scott, you're being reasonable in why you're upset, or B, Scott, you're being triggered by something that's really about you and not about that person. Why don't you just not act at all? Or if they say that I am being appropriately upset, they can say, you know, they can 
respond with Scott, your proposed reaction or this conversation that you want to have with this person isn't going to help anything or it's not worth it. Or that email that you want to type or that email that you're showing me a draft of, maybe you can press the delete button now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and think about it overnight and respond with a with some advice uh, reflecting some of these areas within you that mm. you've acknowledged that you could use some development on. Mm. Frustration tolerance, I will say openly, is something that I'm challenged with. So if I tell someone to do XYZ and they choose to do ABC instead, mm. even though I've explicitly said do XYZ, my irritation with that will sometimes lead to an aggressive response. Mm-hmm. I've learned to turn to those in my circle who are my emotional or my leadership CPAs or JDs or other external advisors and say, um, I told so-and-so to do X, Y, Z. They did something else completely. I'm furious about it. Walk me off the ledge. And they'll talk me off that ledge and they'll give me advice. And then I can sort of integrate my own experience into that, assess it, see whether I agree, but be honest enough to say that, you know, a lot of times these people are telling me these things. In fact, all the times these people are telling me these things because they have my best interests at heart and they want me to succeed. And I'm asking them because I acknowledge that this is a weak area of mine. Let me move forward with it, with their advice in mind, be my better self, work to build that relationship, or at least not damage the relationship with whomever it is that I'm leading, and have a better outcome and ideally a better relationship with the person that I lead. We all have areas of deficiency in our leadership skills, every single person. If we're not acknowledging that, I actually believe we're not really being leaders because we're not leading ourselves. We have to lead our own internal transformation if we can expect to lead anyone or any organization in its own external transformation to success. That's real powerful. We have to lead our own internal transformation if we are to lead an external transformation to success. Any organization ultimately is a reflection of what that leader is projecting. So a few years ago, I joined a Toastmasters group. And for those who don't know, Toastmasters is a public speaking membership organization. And it was having some challenges retaining members. So I was asked to take it over with the expectation that I would increase the membership and and hopefully turn this chapter around and, and make it into a success. Someone much wiser than me had once told me exactly what I just told you. What that organization is will be a reflection of who you are as its leader. And I'm mindful of that every week when I go there. How that came true was both unexpected and down to the letter. I am an entrepreneur. The new members that have joined have overwhelmingly been entrepreneurs. I love bringing into an organizational context a sense of fun, excitement, 
and joy. When guests come to that group, they say, it's fun. Everyone seems to like each other. There's a sense of joy in the group. I strongly believe every human being matters and that everyone needs a home. In fact, most people need multiple homes. And one of the things that people that are members of this group say is that they feel like they matter. They feel like it's a family. They feel like it's a home. All of these things have ended up being reflections of who and what I'm bringing to the table as a leader. Now, it's not complete. No one else in that group besides me will wear suspenders. I don't know why I haven't been able to get them there yet. I'm trying though. But that being said, the inner characteristics that I was bringing to the organization are ultimately what the organization is becoming. If I were to bring toxicity, anger, rage, or domination to the group, my sense is that it probably would just cave in on itself. But if I were bringing other sorts of qualities to the table that might be a little bit more subtle, uh, it might have attracted a different sort of membership and it might have become something different. For instance, if I was very conservative in my approach to my presentation or my speaking style or very rigid in terms of how I like to have meetings run or in terms of my presentation, if I wore a suit every single time with a power tie or if I spoke in a very traditional conservative manner, or was a little bit stayed in the way that I presented when I was at that meeting every week, my suspicion is that the membership ultimately would reflect that, that people would be attracted to that, to me as a leader, because there was something about me that they connected to, and the organization would become that. If I were to, as the leader of that organization, shift internally, I also believe, and the shift might not necessarily be positive, that organization might face a shift too. And so part of being a leader is understanding that those that you're leading are watching every last thing that you do all the time. They're picking up cues, they're connecting with it, or they're not. They're making a decision to stay as your follower or to leave. So there is a public nature to leadership that never goes away, no matter how long you've been in that position, no matter how secure it seems, and no matter how much attention people appear to be paying. How much it appears people are paying attention. And in a couple notes that I wrote down from what you had previously spoke about, when you were talking about instilling that value in the people who follow your leadership, uh, they need to feel like they matter. Yes. Feel like a family uh, and to feel like that they are home. Um, I think a lot of times we get caught up on the nuances of management rather than leadership. Yeah. And we forget about those to me, those are basic human values yes, and human needs, needs, right? Basic human needs. I want to feel like I matter, like I have a yes. purpose, 
which is what you were talking about, leadership and purpose. I'm part of a family and this is my home. One of the great tragedies of industrialization, which admittedly has brought a huge increase in our health, safety, lifespan, quality of life, availability of knowledge, all these other wonderful things that I'm not suggesting that we turn our backs on. But a downside of it has been that, particularly with the advance of mass manufacturing, the commodification of goods and then later services and ultimately business and human beings within organizational life has had a deeply transformative impact on the human experience. Everywhere we go, people and their livelihood and their connection to organizations are at risk. Humans in the economic system that we've chosen to partake in, which I think, by the way, is the best economic system that there is, no economic system is perfect, are feeling more and more commodified. That leads to alienation. It leads to a sense of purposelessness. It leads to a sense of disconnect. And it leads to a sense of lack of trust in leaders that people who are being led see as the instrument, whether they understand it or not, of their own commodification. And so a leader understanding and living in their leadership style, the value of human individuality, the importance of individual self-expression, of taking the approach to those that they lead as being exactly what you've said. Human beings who matter provide a powerful counterfeeling to that generated by the overall commodifying environment that we're living in day in and day out. Every human being matters. And if there's one thing that people can take away from this outside of understanding that purpose ultimately will drive successful leadership, it is that when we lead, if we understand that those that we lead are our people, that we have a responsibility to them, and that every single one of them matters to us, then this conversation will, to me, have been worth it. How many of us feel great when we're dehumanized? I don't know anyone who has said, oh my God, I had such a great day at work today. I felt like a cog in the wheel. I wish my boss would treat me as less than a human being even more. No one says that. Yet we habitually do that to each other. When I worked at that martial arts school, the head of the dojo told me, Scott, as he was training me to instruct, make sure that you praise every student three times and be relentless about that. And I said, why is there this obsession with praising everyone three times every hour of class? And he said, Scott, 
those people may not have received any praise anywhere else. He told me that there were students who, for their entire careers, had gone into work every single day, day after day, and never once been told that they did anything well. And then they might go at, might go home to whomever they were married to or whatever, whatever family they had, if they had a family at all. And they might never hear that they did anything well there. That dojo, those three times every hour, might be the only three times that they heard that they did anything well. Those three times might have been as I interpreted it, the only three times that they were hearing that they were a valuable human being, that they mattered. No wonder the students were so loyal to that school. No wonder I wanted to be an instructor there. I think that's a tactic that I try to take as well, being an, an instructor at a military education uh, academy in that I try to value each and every one of my students individually and to show them that. And there's a, there's a part where we give them feedback and I could give a blanket feedback, right? I could give blanket feedback to the whole class and just, you know, type something up and this is what I send, but I take the time out to every single student to, to give them their specific individualized and custom feedback so that I can show them that I'm valuing them as human beings and maybe just like you said they're not receiving that or this could be the first time they're getting that yeah when i left large organizational life to become an entrepreneur i reported directly to the ceo of the company that i worked at and i went to his office and i told him that i was resigning that i would be forming my own or i would be co-owning this other company but that I didn't want to leave that organization in the lurch. And so I gave about five months notice, I think is what it was. And I said, look, I will be committed to doing my work. And I also will be, they split my position into two. I will be committed to at least participating in the hiring of one of those people while I'm here. And I'll even give you some proposed names of replacements that I feel that I could stand behind and who would be worthy of taking on a role in this organization. And my boss said, to me, you know, he thanked me for that. And then he said, but you know, Scott, I know you are not going to be working until the end for five months. Everyone quits before they quit. The minute they always say that they are going to work, work, work until it's over, but they always just sort of dither off into the end. And I said to him, I'm not everybody. That's not me. And at the end of the day, that went as to why I had left that organization, or at least part of why I had left that organization. I, of course, wanted to own my own business, and I believed in the business that I was stepping into with my business partner. And that was really what was driving it. But at at the end of the day, I also had felt as though I had been managed as though I was everybody else. And that statement predicting my behavior based on what everyone else did was exactly the sort of dehumanizing, commodifying statement that drove me away from that organization. And I have to admit 
no one, including my boss, ever said when I had left that I had slacked off at the end because that wasn't who I was. I was working there on my last day, I think probably till, or at least during that last week, till 10, 11, even midnight some of those nights. That wasn't slouching. That wasn't who I was. I was an individual that was different than everyone else. I often wonder if I might still be there, if there had been an understanding that I was an individual and needed to be managed as an individual, not as everybody else. I think you bring up another good point, being managed as an individual and maybe not as a collective. I think that's a good point and a good quality in a manager slash leader in understanding that, uh, yeah, there's probably one ultimate goal for whatever job it is that, it, you know, that you're overseeing or whatever, but you have individual people working in this job. Yeah. And uh, just like you, um, maybe the way that I approached James, I can't approach Scott that way. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, and knowing that having that emotional intelligence Having that ability to change as a leader and understanding that in uh, that maybe provides some value to you uh, in showing that I'm valuing your individuality. You know, one of the things that you're pointing as to, which I think is so interesting about leadership, pulls back to the broader theme of this episode, which is leadership and purpose. There is always the purpose of the organization that one is leading or the project that one is leading or the exercise that one is leading or the service that one is providing, mm -hmm. then there is the purpose of the individual contributors that are involved in that and navigating and understanding that both of those are at play is, in my opinion, one of those core emotional intelligence skills that you just referred to that we also as leaders need to be mindful of. And why I say purpose, focusing on purpose and its relationship to leadership is such a core part of being a leader. Whatever that purpose of, let's say the organization is, let's say the organization's miss uh, mission is uh, to, let's say it's a police force, is to protect a, a city from crime or to solve crimes once they've been committed. Every individual working for that police force needs to be led to and supported in buy-in of that organization's larger purpose by the leadership. In other words, they need to believe for that police force to be functioning optimally that the or overall organizational goal of protecting the populace and solving crimes is something that they can connect to. At the same time, the leadership also has to understand that the individual goals of the people working for that organization are not all the same and that every single police officer as well as support person as well as anyone else that might be working for that organization all have their own senses of purpose that they are attempting to connect to that they need to have fulfilled 
and then that ultimately are tied into and connected to that large organizational purpose. So one person's purpose conceivably, as they perceive it, could be to really make sure that when a report is put together, that it is clear, that it is organized, that it is easy to find, they may really understand that in order for a police file to go to the DA's office and then uh, support a case against a criminal who has been arrested needs to be organized, needs to be complete, needs to make sense. And they really feel like they were put on this earth to make sure that those files were as well put together, as organized, as complete, as, as beautiful as possible. And by the way, someone who feels that that is their purpose is one of the most valuable people I would imagine in that organization, because they're going to be fully and completely committed to that. And that is actually an important function, a quite important function. But if we're not acknowledging that the individual purpose that, uh, that they may feel is distinct from one person to the next, managing that person may run afoul of what their needs are. And therefore, they may ultimately begin to uh, sort of fall adrift in terms of their commitment to both the job and then the larger organization itself. If you manage a police officer who believes that his principal goal in life, and I'm just saying this hypothetically, is to be out there on the street being the eyes and ears of that community and stopping crimes before they start or chasing down that purse snatcher and and treating them and their goals and objectives exactly the same as that person who loves making sure that those police files are as perfect as possible and just treat them identically and and assume they have the same needs and wants and drivers and positive reactions to things and negative reactions to things, then you're going to end up with both of those individuals being dissatisfied or at least one of them being deeply dissatisfied. Uh, Organizations, in my experience, generally do not hire individuals or create functions for absolutely no reason whatsoever. Even the, even the most dysfunctional of organizations usually attempt to have some justification for the hiring that they, the hirings that they create or the people that work there. And if they have more than one function, then they're acknowledging that the there are a number of different parts that need to come together in order for the larger organization to optimize itself. Not acknowledging that reality then when it comes to looking at the work and the lives of the people that are fulfilling those functions is simply betrayal of not only your leadership uh, as as in, in relationship to those individuals, but fulfilling the function and purpose of that organization. Wow, this has been uh, extremely enlightening for me. And I I teach leadership <laughs> and development, but you know, this is the thing about leadership. It's always evolving. Yes. And it's always having to adjust as it should be, because I think leadership is, 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 is as human as the p- 
person in the position of leadership? I always say anytime our actions impact the lives of others against their will or with their will, you're acting as a leader. So it's a much more complex and pervasive part of life than many of us commonly acknowledge because whether it's just within the confines of our home or our family or our community of friends, almost all of us in one way or another, or at some point or another in our lives, acting as leaders. All right. Thank you, everyone. You have been listening to the Ignite podcast. Uh, Thank you so much, Scott, for talking to us and teaching us about leadership and about purpose. Uh, For everybody listening at home, please go and take a look at the Ignite podcast Facebook page. Also, you can find us on Instagram at at the underscore ignite podcast uh, and look out for our linked tree uh, Scott where can we find you what are you working on you can find me at speakerscott.com my website you can also find me on instagram at s.scott underscore mason or on linkedin with the handle s mason one. I have a podcast called Scott Mason's Purpose Highway, www.purposehighway.com. And as you mentioned at the top of the hour, I co-host a podcast called Just a Squirrel Looking for a Nut with Oleg Loheed. And that is on Facebook and LinkedIn Live every Thursday night at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. I am always looking for opportunities to meet new folks, to talk to new folks, and I am glad to be here and spend this time talking with you. Thank you very much, Scott, and I look forward to seeing you on Thursday on that show. It's always a pleasure. We love having guests, and and please, if you tune into that, as was the case with you, Caleb, make sure that you add to the conversation because we want to hear from people. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And uh, go ahead, Scott. You want to go ahead and take us out? I certainly do. I am Scott Mason, inspirational and keynote speaker and podcaster, and you are listening to the Ignite podcast, and I pass the torch.